and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Kernick-Cook. Kernick-Cook is the former CEO of UCAS, the University and College Admission Service, and now sits on the governing body of the Open University. She was awarded an Order of the British Empire in 2000 for assisting training within the hospitality industry. During her time at UCAS, Kernick Cook spoke up about the discrimination of men in education, highlighting the fact that boys are falling behind. So thank you very much for joining us today, Mary. And I thought just before we get on to your experience at UCAS, which I mentioned in the introduction, I thought it would be interesting to talk about, as we do on this podcast, how you got to that role. And I think one of the quite striking things about your journey is that although you've had a long career in higher education and looking at how you get more pupils into that. You yourself, when you left school, did not go into higher education. You went straight into a job. I did. I left school at 16. I was actually quite clever and I did my A-levels before I left school, but didn't do very well <laughs> and ended up being, I, th- I think my parents didn't really know what to do with me. So I went to secretarial college and yeah, so my first couple of jobs were secretarial jobs, which actually I loved doing. I still write shorthand and I still obviously type. Everyone has to type these days, but I can do it properly. And and then I just kind of embarked on a a journey where I just, I loved working and I seemed to be kind of quite good at it. I just, I just kind of thought, oh, this looks interesting. <laughs> I'll do this. And so, yeah, so I ended up with a, my first sort of proper job was marketing executive slash secretary for a an entrepreneurial biotech company and I I was so excited about it and I had to rush out and buy a book about marketing because I literally had no idea what it was but actually that book was seminal because I kind of read it and it was like you know the scales fell from my eyes and I kind of got it and and then off I went did that traveled around the world I was traveling all over the place you know when I was in my early 20s doing deals with big companies and things and then I moved into the public sector in the food se- in the food industry. Then I got my one of my favorite jobs was running a professional body in the pub industry, which was just so much fun. And it was it was there that I got the, the education bug because in the hospitality sector, it's typical for lots of people end up working in pubs and bars because they haven't got any qualifications and they don't know what else to do. And good people in that sector just progress really, really quickly. So you'd get quite young people progressing to be manager, manager of one pub, then several pubs, then area manager. And so in the early 90s, after the beer orders came in, which kind of opened up the idea of pubs as retail outlets as opposed to just taking beer from their breweries, there was just this explosion of of new pub companies, very often run by people who'd come up through through the ranks in in the sector so we were doing qualifications for these people and you know I can remember giving out qualification certificates to grown men who literally had a tear in their eye because that was the first time anybody had ever kind of validated something that they'd done in that way and it kind of it it got me and that's uh, that's what got me on the on the road to education as a career. And leaving university and going straight into a job, I just wonder, did you ever feel disadvantaged for not going into higher education straight after? Because if I think to, I suppose, my peer group now, definitely those friends who didn't felt 
at times that they had a setback? I think there's two answers to that question because on the one hand I spent you know most of my young adult life hating not being a graduate and feeling like I'd really missed out in some way but also in my generation I'm 60 now in my generation it was quite it was quite normal for people not to go to university so it wasn't such a big deal then whereas now you know by the time the 30 and younger population, half of them have been to university. It just wasn't like that in the late 70s, early 80s. But I hated not being a graduate. And I kind of, you know, because I did my secretarial course in Cambridge, you know, a lot of my friends were at Cambridge. And I, and I could just tell that I was missing <laughs> missing something out. Um, so, but I did finally go to university in my early 40s. Did you feel in Cambridge you were seen differently for... Yeah, but there were quite, you know, there weren't very many female undergraduates in those days. I think the ratio then was something like 10 to 1. And so there were quite a lot of us girls doing secretarial courses and we were we were kind of useful to take on social occasions and <laughs> May balls and things. <laughs> so got the social perks. Yeah. <clears throat> Moving to UCAS, how exactly did you get into that role? Obviously, you say your interest in education was piqued yeah. your work in the hospitality sector. So so when I realised that I wanted to work in education, I resigned from my job in the pub industry and went to London Business School, where I did the Sloan Masters, which is a kind of grown-up MBA, thinking there's no way I'm going to get a big job in education if I don't have a degree. And from there, I went to work for a quango called the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority, now abolished. David Cameron abolished it in the bonfire of the... Quangos in 2010 and that was six years of dementing but fascinating work working with central government on you know what GCSE should look like what A-levels should look like the failed Tomlinson diploma so I got a really good understanding of how qualifications worked and also a really good understanding of education policy from the inside but it was I mean I think I had five different secretaries of state <laughs> to answer to over that time and yeah so when that was about to be abolished I got the job at UCAS which was just a complete dream job it was running a company which I like to think I'm quite good at it was in education which was the sector I wanted to be in still had lots of interaction with policy and, and education politics which I was really interested in and I felt like it was just such a, a force for good. And then once you were there, you have access all of a sudden to all these admission statistics. I was literally like a kid in a sweet shop. <laughs> and I, I think when I went in there, I thought, oh, wow, there's going to be all this great data. And of course, the data was there, but nobody had really looked at how to, to use it. And so we, we built up a a pretty heavy-hitting data science team and really started to kind of extract intel from, from the data and to really understand. And actually was quite crucial because, of course, I was there over that whole period when the £9,000 fees came in in 2012 when David Willits was the university's minister at the time. And, and of course, UCAS was right on the button. You know, we had the data two weeks after each application deadline and we could feed back to government what the impact of the of the fees would be. And then crucially, the following year, that there wasn't this kind of double dip in applications and they came back again, including for disadvantaged students. 
one of the things that you noticed in those statistics, which has made a lot of headlines, I think, during your your time there, was looking at the attainment gap between females and males. What did you find? Do you know it was so interesting because I got I got invited to do a lecture for the Institute of Physics, and it was one of those things where they kind of rang me up and said, "Will I do this?" And I said, "Yes." I was terribly flattered. And then afterwards, I thought, "Oh my lord, what on earth am I going to say to all these physicists?" <laughs> um, anyway, I decided because obviously women doing physics is a kind of known to be a big issue. I thought, "Well, I'll look at gender in education more broadly," and it was it was doing the research for that lecture that kind of got me onto this and I you know obviously more men than women do physics and and some other science subjects but when I looked across the piece at education I could just see this extraordinary disparity between girls attainment right through education starting from early years key stage one two three four five and then all of that playing out in a lot more young women applying for university than young men and so then after I'd kind of got my head around this we started headlining it when we published the statistics we would always look at the gender gap and over time you know of course all the political focus was on the gap between rich and poor disadvantage and advantage in going to education but actually that gap was narrowing and the gap between young men and young women was getting wider to the extent that in probably in less than 10 years, the gap between boys and girls will be worse than the gap between rich and poor. I mean, it's a really significant player. And, of course, the gap between boys and girls is much worse for students from more disadvantaged families. So actually, if you fix the boys' issue, you'll make a huge impact on the, on the, the gaps between rich and poor as well. On finding that, which obviously appears to be a very striking finding... What did you find when you wanted to promote or, you know, highlight that research? Because I've seen, if you want to call them perhaps the lost boys, yeah. uh, you have said in the past that you found it wasn't particularly fashionable. And if anything, sometimes highlighting the fact that the boys are the ones falling behind is, is a bit of a taboo. Yeah, so, I mean, one one thing I found was that it was it was relatively easy to get a, a headline because it was... Yeah. It was kind of a slightly surprising headline. I don't think people had had realised. So it got quite well covered in the press over the time that I was highlighting various aspects of, of this gap. The bit where I still have made no headway whatsoever is from a policy point of view. So even though this gap is so stark right through not just not just in higher education, higher education is the kind of manifestation of the gaps further back down the the education system, there's just never been a policy focus on it. And, you know, when you approach ministers or, you know, the Education Select Committee or whatever, I think it's just a, it's just a tricky issue to have a policy which is specifically about giving boys and men a helping hand. You know, in an age when we have a, a minister of women and equalities, the narrative about gender equality is still about women being left behind and and I think it's just a bit awkward so I haven't done anything good in that respect at all. What what kind of policy do you think would help that? I'm not sure it even needs a policy I mean most schools report you know they you know how much data they collect and report so you can look at, at any school and you can see the gaps between boys and girls and the difference between free school meal boys and free school meal girls and so on 
But there doesn't seem to be any even nudging, let alone directives from government to, to do anything about it. And, I, and I'm not really suggesting that you should have special initiatives for boys, but I think a deeper look at, let's call it gender bias in the curriculum or in teaching and pedagogy, something like that might actually, understanding why boys don't do so well, might help us get it more onto an even keel. Yeah, because I, I do feel I've been to many speeches where perhaps government ministers have focused on the fact they want more girls to do science subjects. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but actually, the gaps in sort of STEM-related higher education and indeed careers is is much smaller than some of the gaps the other way around. So, if you look at um, nursing, teaching, social work, massive gaps in favour of women. And and actually, sometimes I think the fact that the teaching workforce is so predominantly female is a sort of self-perpetuating situation. So. You know, boys see all the teachers being female and they think it's a female occupation, therefore they don't think of it as a career and so it goes on getting more and more female. And maybe that has an effect on um, boys' education, although nobody seems to have proved that, but I just kind of feel instinctively it must be it must be true. Now, you've now left UCAS yeah. and you earned your role there. When we have these education discussions in the media, and I think it's particularly the media... Often the focus is Oxbridge. We talk about school success rates often in relation to how many pupils they get into Oxbridge. I don't sound it, but I grew up in Scotland. Mm. So, so when I came down, to be honest, I wasn't really that aware of the Oxbridge obsession until I went to university at Durham and I realised everyone there had applied to Oxbridge. And yeah. I was going to something which some people dubbed Doxbridge, but in perhaps a... a, a aspirational setting yeah <laughs> and, and it might be because I haven't gone but I was do you think sometimes we dwell too much on Oxbridge when we talk about higher education well I think you have to remember that for you know until relatively recently Oxford and Cambridge were the only universities in the country and you know if you stopped anyone in the street and said name a university Oxford and Cambridge are the, are the big brands and let's face it they're incredibly successful universities and their success has bred more and more success. You know, the better they are at research, the more money they get to do more brilliant research. And, yeah, I've had and good so league on. table. Yeah, and so, um, so, you know, I think it's wonderful to celebrate that we have two of the world's best universities in this country. But, of course, obsessing about Oxford and Cambridge misses out an awful lot else that's really important in higher education. And not just, you know, the rest of the Russell Group and the Durhams of, of this world, but actually all sorts of other universities which are quite often pilloried in the press as kind of Mickey Mouse courses and, you know, lower status universities. And actually when you go to those universities, I would I would say that quite often the transformation of students that you see in some of those universities that have a much more diverse intake than the very high attainment high tariff universities in the Russell group they probably do a bigger transformation of the people who come in in you know freshers week over the following three years than perhaps the Oxford and Cambridges of this world do so I think it's a pity to see everything through an Oxford and Cambridge lens but I wouldn't for a minute detract from 
the fact that they're superb institutions. Yeah, and after I implied that we focused too much on Oxford and Cambridge, I actually want to ask you another question about Oxford okay, and Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm now guilty of it. <laughs> so David Lammy has been someone who's been very vocal yeah. against those two universities in the sense that he doesn't think they do enough to encourage diversity, to enact it. He's He once suggested it was... A case of social apartheid was as, as far as he went, pointing out that in 2015, uh, one in three Oxford colleges failed to admit a single black British A-level student. When you had access to obviously all these application figures, was that one of the trends you saw? So I, so I think of education as a system, and and I I like to think of it as something that people move through, and that qualifications or attainment either helps you get through certain pathways or blocks you from getting through certain pathways depending on on what you've achieved. So what happens in Oxford and Cambridge is absolutely a reflection of how, you know, black versus white, boys versus girls or, or you know, STEM versus non-STEM is happening in the school system. I genuinely, you know, having been to many, many universities in the UK spoken to endless admissions professionals and practitioners, including at Oxford and Cambridge, you know, there isn't somebody there saying, oh, we won't take that person because they're black. It's all about attainment. Now, you could criticise Oxford and Cambridge for not perhaps having, using more kind of contextual information in how they make their offers, and that's a separate issue. But the fact that there aren't more black students, for example, at Oxford and Cambridge is to do with the attainment of black students at, mainly at GCSE, I always think. If you get good GCSEs, then you go on a path to do A-levels and you've got a chance to apply to higher education and if you get good enough grades to the Oxford and Cambridge options. So I always think that those data from Oxford and Cambridge are actually just a, a manifestation of what's going on in the in the school system. I really don't think there's any bias in there at all. In fact, the lowest participation overall in higher education is the white group. Used to be the black group about 10 years ago, but the black participation in higher education has grown enormously, but not at the very, the most selective universities. Because one one thing when you're looking at how to encourage a white working class and two black British students to go to those top tier universities is it, as you say, it does go back to the schools yeah. a lot of the time. And one thing is we've had BTECs, formal qualification, which many schools offer, which awards the same UCAS points as A-levels. Yeah. And we've had a report which by the SMF, which has showed that they're increasingly used by poorer teenagers as a route to higher education and almost half of white working class and black British students in England are reaching unis with BTECs but one potential con with that is a lot of the top tier universities aren't particularly fond of BTECs it is seen to be they prefer the more traditional qualifications do you think that is a factor when when we're looking at a lack of diversity in top tier universities and and I'm grouping things together here but two white working class Males, is, is that one of the hurdles we have? What you're describing is broadly true. And again, it's a, it's a manifestation of what's happened in the school system. So when you do your GCSEs, if you get a good crop of GCSEs at the higher grades, then you'll almost certainly be encouraged to go on the A-level route. 
whatever you think of A-levels, on the whole, they don't close any options for you. If you've got weaker GCSEs, you'll go on to a different level three qualification, and mostly that's BTECs. There are some other ones that are similar, but BTEC is by far and away the largest. So the fact that you have more people from lower income backgrounds doing BTECs is because people from lower income backgrounds tend to get lower GCSE results. So it's it's not a, a kind of social apartheid in choosing A-levels and BTECs. It's all about attainment and how you move through the system and what stops you moving through the system. Now, when it comes to who accepts students with BTECs, it's a very, very different curriculum to A-levels. A-levels is more traditional academic curriculum. BTECs is a more applied vocational type of curriculum and typically associated with a need for lower skills in, for example, literacy and numeracy, although the the BTECs have actually recently been reformed and I think they've kind of upped the amount of assessment and the the levels of literacy and, and numeracy needed. So Oxford and Cambridge and other high tariff universities saying actually students with BTECs might not succeed here is not you know, some kind of prejudice. It's actually knowing what the curriculum has been for those students and knowing that they will struggle on a very academic type of degree course. Do you think then it, in some cases, can be bad advice from schools to get these pupils to go for BTECs? Or, or is that fair because of their academic record? No, I mean, I think... Clearly, some people choose BTECs because they actually want to do those. You know, they're available in some kind of subject domains that you can't do A-levels in. And, for example, if you want to do something like art or performance and drama and things like that, BTECs are are fantastic and there isn't something similar available at A-level. But generally, it's it's about prior academic attainment at GCSE. And now moving to the present day, yeah. you <laughs> have a very long CV when I was doing research yeah. for this, with many current roles. Yeah, And actually, I think you might, actually might have more jobs than George Osborne when I, when I look at this. <laughs> but they're all non-executive <laughs> roles, so that's very different. Um, but one of them is you sit on the governing board of the Open University. Yeah, And I was wondering what your experience has been on that, because obviously UCAS, and it's not, not always the case, but it's often, you know, students dress out fresh out of school and the open university is often seen as a place for people to do their education later on yeah but do you know what there's an increasing no there's an increasing number of school leavers going to the open university and they go and do a job then they do their part-time studies at the open university at the same time and so I think that's fantastic. It's a you know it's a it's a different option, and you'd have to be pretty focused to be able to hold down a, a full time job and do open university studies. It's the most amazing institution. Over two million people have got degrees from the open university, and it's it's been a, a second chance or another chance for lots and lots of people for whatever reason they didn't go to university after school or they didn't succeed at school and then at some point in their working life they kind of get that they want to do more study or they want to retrain or indeed some people later in life doing kind of just doing it out of interest and to study a new subject. When I joined the governing body I mean to be honest being on a governing body of a university there's a lot of quite kind of dull paperwork and stuff that you have to plough through all the regulatory stuff and so on. But when I, when I really got it was 
when I started going to events where you talk to students. And, and this has been absolutely life-changing for so many of the Open University students. And it's just brilliant. It's not, you know, people think of it um, from the, the old days when people were kind of watching BBC Two in the middle of the night, watching their lecturers and so on. And of course now a lot of it is online. But what, what's, what's really important about it is that every student has got a tutor and that tutor is their kind of partner in success and they're constantly in touch on the telephone, on email. Students socialise with other students, they form social groups, not always in person but sometimes virtually. And so it's, it's a very different type of institution. It's got 175,000 students currently. It's, it's just amazing. Just the final part of this podcast, just a few very quick fire questions. Yeah. The first is we keep we've heard a lot about the impact Brexit could have on universities, perhaps yeah. with loss of perhaps grants or academics coming here. And I was wondering, Brexit, do you think it would be good or bad for universities or or, or neutral? Um, I think the university sector on the whole thinks it's really bad news. I have more faith in the higher education sector to adapt and, and make it work. And then tuition fees review. We know the government are considering ways to look at this and Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn and Labour wants to abolish tuition fees full stop. We're hearing Theresa May might opt for the Miliband version, so reducing the fees by a third a year. What do you think the solution to tuition fees is? I, th- I think it's a, a real pity if the government loses its nerve. I think the current system, with a few tweaks, um, particularly around going back to maintenance grants instead of loans. It's it's a brilliant system because it's free at the point of entry and you don't have to pay back unless you get the, the benefit through a higher earning career. And then if you kind of fall off the the road along the way, you stop paying and it all gets it all gets paid off after thirty years anyway. And I think it's a really good system for making sure that people who benefit from getting a degree pay for it and those who don't don't have to pay for it and there's a balance between the you know the, the government and the taxpayer supporting higher education as a whole for the people who don't get to pay back and the people who benefit do so I think it's a, a real shame if they cave into this ludicrous idea that it's affordable or even kind of politically acceptable to put that much money into higher education to make it free and would enormously benefit people who are rich and you know come from higher income backgrounds because those are still unfortunately the biggest proportion of people who go on to higher education. In looking back at your career and the things you still want to achieve what would you like your legacy in this sector to be? Oh blimey. It's the last one um, so it gets to be difficult. (laughs) Yeah so I think I'd like my legacy to be around using data for real insight into you know, who does and doesn't get to benefit from various types of education, particularly higher education, and being able to put the spotlight on those who are in some way left behind. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Mary. Thank you.